Paul, when you're ready. We up? Okay. I don't know if they're going to like me after this message. We'll see. <laughs> so we're going to continue through the book of Romans. We're in a section of the book of Romans here where it is really, really going to be hard because it <clears throat> what the Word of God does is it forces us to take a look at ourselves as we really are. So I'm going to let you know up front, this week and next week are going to be a little tough, but Dr. Carter and I have the responsibility of preaching the whole counsel of God, not just the kumbaya moments and the feel-good stuff, but the real gospel, which is also God's judgment and righteousness. So we're going to start, and we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to read verses 12 through 18. You can follow along in the overhead. And just be thinking as we read this, you know, just be thinking about your relationship with the Lord. What does that look like? So let me read. <coughs> All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. <clears throat> their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. <clears throat> and the path of peace have they not known? Look at verse 18. <clears throat> there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, put up slide three. We're going to start at back at verse 10. A little recap from the last time I was with you. Let's try to tease this apart. Verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And you can see there the grafdata, the word that we use for written. It's interesting that this verse, church, is actually translated in what we call the perfect tense in the Greek. Well, what does that mean? Why is it important? It's in the Scripture. Paul says, as it is written. Well, if you remember... The perfect tense speaks of an action that was completed in the past, but it has ongoing, continuous results here in the present. What does that mean for us? Well, even for the Jews, back then the scriptures that were entrusted to them and the scriptures that have been entrusted to us from the past hold the same weight and permanence in our lives today. There's no dwindling here. So the power of the Word of God in the past is still the same Word of God in the present. And as we've learned many times as we've gone through this book of Romans, this letter to this small church of Rome, we did learn that the Jews did consider the Old Testament that they had at the time as authoritative. So what was Paul doing? Well, slide four. Paul's actually quoting from here from the Psalms because that's what they back then considered authoritative, the Jews. So what is the... Psalm 14, 1 through 3 say, The fool has said in his heart, There's no God. They are corrupt. 
They have committed detestable acts. And there's that statement, there is no one who does good. Yahweh looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there is anyone who understands, who seek God. Verse 3, what does it say? They've all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now I want you to think about how sad and tragic it was. We know back then that the Jews had God's, literally His revealed word to them. In fact, they would boast about it. And back then, no other nation had these oracles of God at that time. And yet, they didn't even live by or know their own scriptures. And sadly, this is just as true for most in the church today. They have a Bible in their home, a complete Bible, and they don't spend any time in it, and they don't even understand the scriptures because they don't invest any time in it. And that is how God speaks to us today through His Word. Slide 5. He says, There is none righteous. And there's that word, dioxine. There's none righteous. And if you look over here, that word uk means not, none, absolutely none. None righteous, not even one. So to remember what that word means in our last teaching time. What did Paul mean when Paul used that word for righteousness? It's that Greek word that you see up there. And there it's pronounced diakios. What does that mean? And this is something that we should all learn and memorize so when we see the word as it's used in context, we know what the word righteousness means. It means the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with Himself. It's God's righteousness is the act or decision by which He, God, He what? He judges and He declares a person innocent. We've learned that because of sin in our own lives, none of us, church, none of us are innocent before God. <coughs> we have no righteousness of our own. There's nothing that we could do on our own to declare ourselves innocent before God. Nothing. We have no power on our own to make ourselves right, innocent, and virtuous before God. Because everything that God does is righteous. And I hope we understand that. And we've learned that since the fall of mankind, man rests under the curse of sin, and that he on his own does not merit salvation. Sin has corrupted man's thinking so much that he actually lacks the ability on his own to understand the truth about himself. In fact, slide 6, Paul says what? There is none who understands. You see that, church? Sunion. There's no one that understands. What did Paul mean here? Well, that word sunion means to put together. To bring together in the mind is actually the two words coming together. It means to grasp the concepts, to see the proper relationships between those concepts. What are the truths that they back then, and many of us today, are not grasping? Look at the way the New Living Translation puts it. For the hearts of these people are hardened. 
and their ears cannot hear. They have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, their ears cannot hear, their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Powerful, isn't it? They've shut off listening and comprehending anything that God says. Why? Well, look at slide seven. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth? The natural man, meaning the unsaved man, person who's dead in their sins, does not accept, literally does not welcome into his own heart the things of the Spirit of God. They are meaningless, meaning they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The thought here, church, is that, is that not only does man not accept the things of God, he's even unable to receive them. Well, Jesus points this out, slide 8, in John 8, 43. What is Jesus He's speaking to the Pharisees. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? Church, hear me this morning. This is important. This has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of clarity. It has nothing to do with a lack of clear teaching from the Scriptures. What it really means and what it has to do with is God's message being intolerable to a person's sinful heart. Because a man's sinful heart, his moral depravity, he does not want to accept the gospel. Man today will turn to anything or anywhere except to God. Everything now is a mental illness. Everything's a disease. What do each of us turn to when we want our own way. I want you to think about that. When you want your own way and it's settled in your heart, what do you turn to that's not God? Some people turn to the bottle, some to drugs, all different things. Because our hearts are these idol-making factories, depraved man will not seek after God. People are literally running away from God. They're not running to Him. Think with me this morning, church. People today are indifferent and selfish. People want gods that will allow them to do their own thing. They want gods to allow them to live as they please and they dictate. Can that be said about any of us? Oh, it's quiet in here now, Dr. Carter. Unsaved people want the blessings and all the goodies that God gives <clears throat> Many unsaved people will darken the doors of the church as long as the preacher sticks to teaching life skills and nice, happy, kumbaya stories. But man, they're going to run from a church that teaches that man is a sinner and needs to repent. What is Paul saying? I'm just preaching what the text says. Look at slide 8. There is no one who, what? Seeks for God. The idea of seeks is searching out. People today seek out and crave anything that is gratifying to the flesh. They will search it out, crave for it. But sadly, as Paul tells us here, they won't search out or crave Christ. What does Paul say in verse 12? Slide 9. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Take a good hard look at that verse. 
Okay, Paul, what do you mean when you're saying all have turned aside? <clears throat> the idea of turning aside, church, means to deviate from or to shun. The idea is to turn away from and avoid walking with God. Literally, that's what Paul's saying. They've turned aside. They've turned away. <clears throat> they've shunned God, and they are avoiding walking with Him. Each one has deviated from going the right way. Each one has shunned God because they're on a collision course with God. And each has abandoned or corrupted the worship of God. So Paul, slide 10, says they have become useless. Wow. He's not pulling any punches here this morning, church. And he wasn't pulling them when he preached this or in this letter. That word useless has the idea of something that is putrid and offensive. It's kind of like fruit or eggs that have spoiled, or spoiled milk, which produces absolutely no benefit at all. Spoiled fruit, spoiled milk, things that have gone bad, produce no nourishment or benefit at all. Isn't it interesting how sin promises freedom, but in the end, sin delivers slavery. And so Paul says, listen, there is no one who does good. That's the word Christates. No one who does good. See on the bottom there? Again, there's that word uk underneath the no one. There's no one who does Christotes. No one who does good. What does he mean by that? Well, the word good means people that are morally excellent. It has the idea of doing things that actually honor and bring glory to God. It has all the flavor of being gentle and being kind. But we all of us, we all know that man will do things to bring satisfaction to himself. Let's be really honest this morning. Isn't that true of us too? Let's be honest. If the true test of our actions is to bring glory and honor to God, here's the question. How have you done this? So this past week. Think about this past week. What have you done each day to bring glory and honor to God. You get 60 minutes in an hour. You get 24 hours in a day. You sleep at least eight of those or maybe some people even more away. What are you doing to redeem the time you have? Each day that clock, that wristwatch winds down and sooner or later if you have a battery-powered wristwatch, the battery goes dead and that's it. Think about it. What have you and I done this past week that actually brought glory and honor to God. In fact, how much time, think about it, He is God and we're not, how much time have we really invested being alone with Him to hear from Him? We get so wrapped up in the day and all the things that we have to do because we want to be in control, we want to get it done. If the true test of our actions is to bring glory and honor to God, how are we doing lately, church? The one thing that's true is God sees our hearts. He knows our motives, doesn't he? Slide 11. Paul just keeps putting it on. Their throat is an open grave. Think about that, their throat. By the way, that word throat there, that's where you get the word larynx from. See that, guys? If you know you have a larynx, you know you're Greek. I'm proud of you. See that? Their larynx is an open tapas, an open grave. 
With their tongues they keep deceiving. See, the participle at the end of the word deceive is an ongoing action. The poison of asps. It's under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Whew. You know, if you're around a person long enough, you will notice that their character will soon come and be on full display through the way they talk. How's your talk lately? Think about it. God owns your words. How's your talk? Well, it's real quiet now, Dr. Carter. I don't know. So, Paul, what did you mean when you said open grave? Well, Paul, again, because he's dealing with the Jews, they consider the Old Testament authoritative. Look at Psalm 5.9 there. Let's go to uh, slide 12. Here's the New Living. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself, meaning there's perverseness there and there's calamity. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter, meaning they're a smooth talker with their tongue. Slide 13, NLT. My enemies cannot speak a truthful word. Their deepest desire is to destroy others. Don't we see that going on today, church? Their talk is foul. Like the stench from an open grave, their tongues are filled with flattery. Think about this for a moment. Think for a moment about an open grave. What's there? A dead and putrefying body. Now, we got to keep in mind, there wasn't the embalming techniques that we have back in Paul's day. This was, for them, a big word picture to those who heard this back in his day. He says, open grave. Think about the stench that comes out of an open grave, the stench of death, of rotting, putrefying flesh. He's trying to really paint a picture. Remember, we don't think in words in our minds. Our minds are an easel board. We think in pictures. So Paul is painting this picture in their mind using words of an open grave. And back then, the stench that would come from an open grave was pretty bad. It would make you hurl. It's bad. And he's saying that that stench, that, 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 fil- that putrefying stench, that's the condition of the throats of men. Think about the talk that pours out of our mouths. Think about it. How much putrefication have we hurled out of our mouths to other people because they offended us in some way and we wanted to put them in their place? Ooh, ouch. Think about that. I'm just, this is what he's saying. Has our throats, our larynx, our mouths been a place where putrefying, toxic, horrible things have come out of our mouths to assassinate somebody with their words? Have our mouths become these weapons of mass destruction, like like a bomb blowing up in somebody because we want to harm them? What does Jeremiah 17.9 say, slide 14? Where does that throat draw, that larynx? Where is it drawing its power from? Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful, meaning the heart is more fraudulent 
and crooked than all else. It's desperately sick. It's wicked. It's frail. Who can understand it? Jesus in slide 15 in Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Your mouth is where your heart becomes revealed in words. Remember that. Think about it. Your mouth only produces what it's told to produce. And we can see that your heart is where your mouth overflows with words. And so your character is revealed. In fact, uh, the NLT says, You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. I guess that's why David also said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do we have the courage to say, Lord, create in me a clean heart? What would be different if our mouths were not weapons of mass destruction? Think about it. Slide 16, Paul goes on to say, their tongues continually deceive. I had to say, okay, Paul, I don't want to read my 21st century thinking into that word. Paul, what did you mean when you used this word? What was going through the minds of the people when Paul was writing this back then, 2,000 years ago? Greek word is dolio. It's very interesting, this word about deception here. I want to make sure we unpack it. There's a lot more meaning than just what we think. So the idea of the word Paul used when he was speaking and writing this letter is the idea of luring. It's kind of like the idea about fishing. Think about it. Bait is put on a fishing hook to hide the hook from the fish. It prevents to the fish something that is tasty and good. He gets a meal. Sadly, when the fish takes the bait, he becomes the meal, doesn't he? So the verbal form of the word, and in our English you have a participle at the end, that I-N-G, the, the, the idea is this, that this is an ongoing thing, this deception, promising something, smooth talking, leading people to believe something that really isn't true, typically in order to gain some personal advantage over them. Have we ever been guilty of that? What's Paul trying to get across here? Do we sense the uncomfortableness in our hearts right now because every one of us have been guilty of some of these things? See, Paul was dealing with smooth talkers back then. People that would speak lies, they would flatter with words. They would pretend to be what they're not. That's where we get the word hypocrite from. The word actor, our English word actor, comes from the word hypocrite, pretender. You know, wearing a mask. Back in those days when they were doing plays, they had a paper mask they would hold up. Today they don't do that, but back then that's what they did. See, there's, there's, there's a sinful motive behind all the flattery and what's going on. This speaks of people who may be friendly up to your face, but behind you they criticize you and speak evil of you. Slide 17. Let, let's, let's get real with this this morning. Let's take the Bible, let's take the Word of God and say, Okay, Lord, help me apply this teaching to my own life. What are the areas that you're exposing in me that need to be repented of and dealt with? 
So, in what ways is your communication an attempt to control somebody? Hmm. How about this? Is the way I talk to people, is it infected with demanding, critical, impatient, accusatory, or condemning words? That's real quiet now, Dr. Carter. Do I find it easy to deceive people or manipulate them in order to get what I want from those people? Look at slide 18. Look what Paul says next. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So think about this. Paul shows us here in this verse just how much knowledge of the Old Testament writers he had regarding an asp. See, an asp, church, is a very deadly poisonous snake. The adder or the viper, as we call it, has a very small but deadly bag of toxic poison in its upper jaw close to its fangs. When the adder is about to pounce on somebody, the victim... He cocks his head back, and while he's doing this, the fangs drop down, and he bites the victim. Now, while he's biting this victim, he then presses the fangs into the victim and empties out that deadly bag of poison and injects it into his victim. That's what kills the victim. How interesting that Paul uses this illustration here to reveal how deadly our talk is. Can be, and we tend to forget that God owns our words. I want to think, I, I, when I looked at this, I had to think back through my life. How many people have I been an ask to? How many people have you? How many toxic things have spewed out of our mouth that crushed a person's heart or spirit? You know, the smooth talker may show you honey, but in reality, it's poison, church. How do we apply this to ourselves today? How do we take what Paul's teaching and say, okay, Lord, help me understand this. Open my blind eyes, open my deaf ears to understand your word. Our tongues are restless and evil because of our hearts. Luke 6.45, church. Our word problems reveal our heart problems. Here's something else. The situations... And the people that God has placed into our lives are those occasions in which our hearts can reveal themselves in words. I used the illustration before when you guys were in, back at Walmart when they had people that would take your groceries for you and you didn't have to actually work for them for free. We'll leave that alone. But back then, you know, you're in line and the lady's doing stuff or maybe she slips up or something happens and you're in a rush and you start getting angry. Well, who made you angry? Did she make you angry? Or did you make yourself angry because of her? And you start, you know, rumbling and complaining under your breath because you want to get out of there. You have things to do. Our words reveal our hearts. What did James say? Slide 19 of James 4, 1 and 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Put up slide 20. Let's, let's look at it in the modern vernacular, the NLT. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. Ouch. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, really, with the right motives. I want you to think about how we spoke, all of us, to people this past week. Just think about all the different conversations that you had. Did you or I spew out anything poisonous or toxic from our mouths this week? What, what happened to our talk when things didn't work out the way we wanted to or our expectations weren't met? How did our talk go? We'll come to church and we'll raise hands and bless you, Jesus. Kumbaya, my Lord, bless you. And then when things don't go our way, or we get aggravated, all of a sudden, what happens? That, that, that worship becomes silent over here like a whisper, and our demands come up in full display in the way we communicate. Paul uses some pretty powerful words here. The word quarrels, the word palamas. That's where we get our English word polemics from. It, this word quarrels has the idea of really prolonged or serious disputes with somebody. Today, when we think about quarreling or these disputes, we think about, we use the word heated arguments, hostile feelings, a falling out with somebody, shouting matches. I know none of you ever had that stuff happen, so it's not true. But then he he rivets it with the word conflicts, wamake. This, This is about an actual fight or a very serious disagreement. This has an idea of, clashing or battling between two opposing forces. It seems that the use of both words here suggests hostile or even violent, toxic, unhealthy relationships. Think about what James is unpacking for us here. Lust, evil desires. Church, another important thing is unhealthy passions for pleasure and instant gratification are destroying our country and destroying our church. The unhealthy idea here, the evil desires, the unhealthy things that we're passionate about because we want pleasure or instant gratification. See, people today want the restraints gone so they can abandon doing things the way God has ordained for them to be so they can enjoy the pleasures available to them in this fallen world. We have drugs out there with fentanyl in them. People taking that, boom, they're done. They wanted that momentary pleasure and escape, and it cost them their life. Or to the alcoholic, the bottle or your wife. The drug addict, your home and your car, your family, or the drugs. 
Slide 21. There may be a lust for more and more food. How about more booze? More illegal drugs? Illicit sex? Porn? Possessions? More money? You know, I, I hear this from some people. Pastor Jack, if I win the lottery, oh. To them I say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't God say man shall work by the sweat of his brow? God ordained man to work, not to get one of them little tickets. See, did I win? I ain't talking about any of you here, I'm sorry. How about more recognition, more vengeance? There's a whole uh, laundry list that you could add to that, but I want you to be thinking about it. What is the quarreling and fighting that's going on? Everything we're talking about here is the opposite of the way God wants it to be for us as a church. He wants us to look like a peculiar people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. He wants us to look different than the world. I want us to look off color from the world. I want them to see us and say, what is different with them? They have nothing, yet they're still happy. How about what Paul Tripp teaches? He was one of my seminary professors. I love this. Paul Tripp says this in slide 22. A desire battles for control until it becomes a demand. Look at that. A desire, something that we desire, that desire battles, fights in us for control, and then it turns into this demand. Then all of a sudden, this demand is then expressed as a need. For instance, I need respect, I need sex, I need drugs, alcohol, or whatever. Right? The demand, which started out as a desire, now becomes a need. Then our sense of need sets up our expectations. But expectations, when it's unfulfilled, leads to disappointment. Disappointment then leads to some kind of punishment. You didn't give me what I wanted, so therefore I'm going to punish you with my words. You didn't do the things the way I wanted them done, exactly the way I wanted them done, so I'm going to punish you. I'm going to use my mouth like an asp and inject stuff in you to crush your spirit down because I want you to conform to my image because I am the God of my universe. Verse 23, James says, you know, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. By the way, you can assassinate somebody with your mouth pretty badly. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Or slide 24, the NLT. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. How often do we resort to solving our problems with anger? Think about it. When I, when I look at all this, I, I, I think of the more I try to get my needs met by the world, the more angry I become because the world will never give me what only Jesus Christ can give me. Paul Tripp again, slide 25. There is this constant migration in our hearts because we are sinners away from away from the worship and service of the Lord, and we replace this worship and service 
was something in creation. We all struggle with worship disorders. I had to ask myself, how many people did I harm this week with my own words? How about you? Paul says, slide 26, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Let's make sure we understand what Paul means when he uses the word cursing and bitterness. We think of cursing today as profanity, but cursing also has more of a meaning to the people Paul was writing to. The idea of cursing as it is used here is that, listen, hear me now, you're desiring the worst for somebody, making your feelings for that person publicly known or open by criticizing and slandering that person. The idea of cursing here goes well beyond just profanity. You, you, you're, 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 you, want, you want that person to pay. You hate their guts. You want the worst for them. So you're going to go out in public and you're going to criticize and you're going to assassinate their character and their name. Ouch. Bitterness here has the idea in the original language of having this emotional hostility towards somebody. Slide 26 and 27. Here's some more of those questions that really, really make us feel uncomfortable. Did any of us use profanity this week? If God owns my mouth, and Matthew 12, 36 says, I'm responsible for every careless word that I speak. Jesus said that. Did I hurl out profanity out of my mouth this week? Did you curse at your spouse or maybe your kids or your boss this week? Did you curse or use sign language at the person who cut you off this week in your travels in your car? I'm sure none of you had any horrible things to say going down 422. I bet you were the gentlest Christians that ever walked the face of the earth. Paul would be taking notes off you, wouldn't he? Woo! Slide 26. Did you say any hurtful things to somebody this week? Did you accuse rather than listen? Did you try to slow down and listen first? Slide 27. How's your talk been? How about this? Does the way that you talk to other people, does it encourage faith and personal growth in those people around you? Do they want to know more about who Jesus is because they see how you are living differently than the world? Finally, how about this? What sin has the Lord shown you to remind you of your ongoing need for His grace? That's a tough one. I got a laundry list. You guys are way ahead of me. You probably have nothing on your list. Hear me this morning. I fully understand and know that these questions make all of us very uncomfortable, but you know they need to be asked. We, we need to be honest about the way we communicate with other people. Hear me this morning. People today will blame God, put them on trial for the situations they have put themselves in, and so they end up cursing God. 
they make bad decisions or wrong decisions, and then they blame God. Yet they never open up their Bible, but they all of a sudden God becomes real to them when they want to hurl out profanity at them because of the situations that they put themselves in or they find themselves in. There is this open criticism and slander where God is now put on trial, but in reality, all of humanity is the one that is guilty of cursing God. That is the result of us all being born outside the Garden of Eden. We are all children of the fall. We inherited that sin nature from our first parents. So Paul is seemingly devoting a lot of attention to this topic in these verses we've been unpacking about talk. How about Paul writing to uh, the church at Ephesus, slide 28 and 29. Here's Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, meaning off-color bad jokes, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. I like the NLT. By the way, that word immorality there is where we get the word pornea from, where we get our English word pornography from. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure, look at verse 5. Verse 5 should hit us square between the eyes. Ephesians 5.5. 5. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Boy, that should have all of us putting our hands over our mouths. Church, we don't have any act by where we can make ourselves right with God on our own. Either that or this is lying to you and I. And I think this is telling us the truth. Slide 30. Well, we've only got about two or more hours to go. You'll be fine. <laughs> Romans three fifteen and 16. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood, or to shed blood, I should say. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Again, what is Paul doing? He's talking to the Jews. He's saying, okay, you guys consider the Old Testament authoritative. Here it is, Isaiah 59, 7, slide 31. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. Slide 32. Their feet run to do evil. They rush to commit murder. They think only about sinning. Misery and destruction always follow them. You know, think in 1 Corinthians, the Bible says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If there are people in your life that have chosen to live a lifestyle that is the opposite of the way that God wants you to live to glorify Him, you need to start thinking about that relationship is going to be toxic for you. Because one of two things is going to happen. 
either they're going to disciple you to come back to the ways of the world, or you're going to disciple them to come to Christ. Or, you know what? Bad company corrupts good morals. There are some people that we cannot associate with because they have made a commitment to live the opposite of the way God wants you and I to live. What do we see here? According to these verses, we see hearts and minds set upon doing evil things. There is a deliberate, willful choice to be evil. And the end result of this sinful behavior, Paul tells us on slide 32, destruction and misery are in their paths. Or misery and destruction always follow them. Church, hear me. Sin is destructive. It always destroys lives. Here, here, let me say that again. Sin is destructive, and it always, always destroys lives. Let's apply this to us today. What happens to other people when you and I follow through with our sinful thoughts? Here's an example. Example would be a married man having an affair or perhaps having an intimate relationship with somebody that he meets at work or he's, you know, he's just cheating on his wife and then she becomes pregnant. Or maybe drinking and driving and then getting a DUI or drinking while intoxicated and then you end somebody's life. Hear me. When you and I practice sin and we start running to it, like running to the bar or the drug dealer or the mistress, misery and destruction are always the end result. Am I right? Always the end result. That's not the way God has ordained us to live. And then sin destroys our character. It destroys our reputation. And it leads to even more misery. Wow. What a description of sin Paul is giving us here. We're almost done. Slide 33. Romans 3.17. The path of peace they have not known. Slide 34. Quoting from Isaiah 57.21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Hear me. We're almost done. Those who choose to practice wickedness as a way of life have no peace in their life. Sin, church, hear me. Sin is the absence of peace. It's the absence of peace. It's nothing but hostility. Paul says there is no, slide 35, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, Paul, what did you mean when you used that word phobos there? Well, the way it's used here, these unbelievers, there's no dread or terror. Now, there is a positive fear that believers should have. As a follower of Christ, the fear that that Paul would want us to have is a reverential fear and awe-inspiring, devout, total respect for Yahweh. Do we have that? Ask yourself, do you have a reverential fear and a devout, respectful, worshipful attitude towards Yahweh? The negative side, it's dread and terror. How about slide 36, John MacArthur? This is what MacArthur says. Ideally, Christians should live 
holy lives out of love for God and gratitude for His grace and blessings. Let me read that again. I want that to really rivet itself into our head. Christians should live holy, meaning set-apart lives, out of love for God and gratitude or being grateful to God for His grace and His blessings. But it often takes God-given hardship and pain to pry believers from sin. Or it takes the prospect of punishment to keep them from getting into it in the first place. Ain't that the truth? Paul has been trying to establish throughout all of these chapters here, two and three, that the Jews were just as much under God's wrath as the Gentiles. This is why he was consistently quoting from the Old Testament because at least they considered it authoritative. And we've already learned that the Jews boasted about having the Old Testament. This is why Paul used these scriptures to drive this home. And here... In verse 18, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Look at slide 37 and 38. Let's go to slide 38 just for time. It's the same verse. Look at this, church. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. In their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. Everything they say is crooked, and deceitful, and they refuse to act wisely or do good. <clears throat> Church, hear me this morning. David, King David, saw the wickedness and depravity of the people. He saw what they did. He saw how they behaved, and he concluded they have no fear of God before their eyes. If we apply these scriptures that you just read in your Bible... Psalm 36, let's get personal. Slide 39, church, or guys. Here we are. We're just about done. Do we fear the Lord? Think about it if they videotape the past 14 days of my life and the past 14 days of your life, and they put the video right up here for you and I to watch. Would it show anybody that you and I have a healthy, devout, reverential feel, fear for Yahweh. Be honest. Think about the way you've lived. Forget me. I'm insignificant. I'm just dirt, honestly. Do you and I have a fear of the Lord? Do you and I live out each day and reveal to others that we have a reverential fear of of Yahweh? Or do they see nothing different about us and the way the world lives? How about this? <clears throat> do we have a positive fear, meaning a reverential fear, an inspiring, devout, respectful, worshipful fear of Yahweh? Does that show up, church? Look at me. Does that show up in our daily parapeteo, our daily walk with the Lord? Is that showing up? That we have a reverential, devout, inspiring, respectful, worshipful fear of Yahweh. 
it's bone chilling when you think about how easy it is for us to forget some of the things that we've done. But if you looked over the past 14 days, what's on, what's being revealed if it was shown on tape? Tough questions. Go to slide 41. 41 to 42. Let me finish up here because I know we're just about done. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of knowledge. Only fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. Do we hate evil? Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Verse 26. In the fear of Yahweh, there is strong confidence, meaning if I have a devout, inspiring, respectful, worshipful, reverential fear of Yahweh, there's strength there because I trust Him more than I trust the world. And His children will have refuge. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. The fear of Yahweh leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. These verses, it seems to me that this is the foundation you and I, if we're going to walk with the Lord, need to begin from. If we don't have a reverential fear for the Lord, we will go wrong, church, everywhere else. We're not talking about tormenting fear. We're talking about reverential fear. Let me ask you this. Are you in awe of God's wonderful power and majesty? Are you in awe of it? Slide 43, what did David say? I have set Yahweh continually before me because He is at my right hand. I'm not going to be shaken. You know, the closer that you cling to Christ, the more confidence you have to live in this fallen world. Slide 44, do we really desire to worship Him? Be honest this morning. Do you desire to worship Him? Do you desire to praise His holy name? Is there a desire in your hearts to be in His presence? Let me ask you an honest question this morning. Do you want to be in His presence? Think about it. Do you want to be in His presence? Guess what? Guess what? You are. Right now, you are in His presence. Right now, this very moment. Because God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at the very same time. He is not 10% here and 90% in China. He is everywhere all at the very same time. He knows what you're going to say two hours from now that you don't even know what you're going to say because He knows the end from the beginning all at the very same time. And let me finish with 45. Let me finish with Ezekiel here. Let me, let me finish up. I love Ezekiel 36, 26. 
I will give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Do you sense this morning, to you listening around the world, I know we've covered a lot of tough stuff this morning. Do you sense God the Holy Spirit working in you right now? Hear me. It is only church. Hear me. It is only through God's sovereign grace that you are saved. You don't believe the lie that you can save yourself. You can't. You and I will never be good enough to save ourselves. Hear me. It is only through the righteousness of Christ that we can ever enter into heaven to be with the Father. To make a person come alive who is dead in their sins. Church, listen, it is only something that God can do alone. A corpse cannot revive itself. You've been to enough funerals. A corpse can't revive itself. In fact, it can't even assist in doing so. It only responds after receiving new life. You and I are dead in our sins and trespasses, so only God, the Holy Spirit, can change our condition and make us alive. As I close this morning, it is God alone, only God alone, who is sovereign. It is only God alone who can change our will so that you and I can begin to see Jesus the Christ with new eyes as he is. And I'm going to close with something I said last month. There is no such thing as being too great of a sinner. Satan wants you to believe the lie that you're beyond saving, that you're not worth saving, that you sin far too much. Don't believe the lie. Hear me. It does not matter, church, how many times you and I sin every day or continue to sin. It doesn't matter whether you've committed murder or you're the most prideful, self-righteous sinner that ever walked the globe. It doesn't matter how much booze you have drank yourself into a stupor, how much drugs you've used. It doesn't matter if you're a thief or you were a drug dealer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much profanity you hurl out of your mouth or how many lies you told. doesn't matter if you had an abortion. doesn't matter if you have a criminal record. I can go on and on and on. But you know what? The Bible teaches us there's hope for the most desperate, wretched, filthy, darkest sinner like myself. Why? Because the power of God is the gospel. Should bring everyone comfort. You see, God is still about the business of rescuing sinners. And it's only through God the Son that our debt can be canceled because Jesus paid it all. So how is that applied to our life? How can a man who is dead or a woman who is dead in their sins save him or herself? They can't. Because it is God and the Holy Spirit alone who chooses to breathe life into dead sinners like all of us. He's the only one who can make you right with the Father. Church, when you come to that place of complete inability and you know that there's nothing you can do to turn away God's wrath and anger, 
and you're ready to trust in and believe Christ alone who has bore that sin on the cross, my encouragement to you this morning is that you surrender your life to Christ. You don't know if today is going to be the last day. Those people killed in Philadelphia yesterday did not know when they woke up that this morning that they would be dead. The horrible tragedy that we see going on in the world with the schools, they didn't wake up that morning and think they were going to be dead. You could end up dropping dead today and you don't have a clue when it will happen. If you're here this morning, I want to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as he has been freely offered to you in the gospel. All you can do is fall on your face and repent and say, Lord, forgive me and surrender your life to him. Because here's the thing. Like I said in the beginning, that battery watch is going to run dry. It's going to end. And you're going to stand before holy God. And you're going to have to give an account to him about everything you've ever done. Every filthy, careless word that's come out of your mouth, everything you've ever done, you're going to have to give an account. It's going to either be paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross because that was imputed to you and your sins were imputed to him, or you're going to reject Christ and you're going to be burning in hell for all eternity. Make no mistake about it. That's what the Bible teaches. You can read it yourself. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Shake hands, meet and greet. Line up there for an awesome meal today.